Welcome to It's a Nice Place to Brew with Jason and George, a show about all things beer and beer making. Gentlemen, please broadcast responsibly. So you got your intro? Do you have your Yeah, and now my month is complete. Do you have you know. do you have your notes? Oh I do. Right here in front of me. Do you have a drink in hand? I do. Yes. Then I think we're ready to record then. Yeah. So what so I assume wait, hang on now. But that's one side of the equation. Do you have your notes and your drink in front yes of you? Yes and yes. Okay, and good. I have... What do you what do you got? Oh we'll we'll get to that. Go ahead. Let's get through our our okay. Basic intros first. Welcome to A Nice Place to Brew. I'm Jason. And I'm George. We are here to talk about grain today. But before we get into that, George, what kind of drink do you have in front of you? I have a Manhattan this time around. Uh, Oh. I don't have... uh, Yeah, I I was feeling a little uh, uh, liquory, I guess you could say. Okay. My, uh, My dad was up last weekend and... He can't do a lot of craft beers. Uh, they, they're too hard on his stomach. So uh, I always make sure I have um, um, Michelob Ultra in the house for him. Uh, and I'll tell you what, I, which was not part of our cheap beer selection it, because Jason did not want a case <laughs> of Michelob Ultra in his It could house. have been, though. That would yeah. have been very fitting. I, well, and I sympathize because now I have a case of Michelob Ultra <laughs> in my house because he proceeded to drink like three of them and i have you know so many oh see see you're right that's exactly why i was not willing to do that because i would be left with a whole bunch of beer that i'm not going to reach for right so you know i was every once in a while it's not so bad i wanted something light with dinner we had a nice light chicken dish so i drank that and it was light and refreshing and you know, slightly beer like so (laughs) i you know i slightly beer like I, i (laughs) <laughs> slightly beer like so i was in the kitchen before this and i was like what do i want to drink you know i didn't want to go to a wee heavy um you know right before i'm going to bed and things like that so i decided a little nightcap was was in order and and grabbed a, a uh manhattan and when i say that i mean that because this is i've never seen this before but this is a jefferson manhattan and it's pre-mixed so it has the um, the whiskey base, the uh, vermouth, and the bitters already inside the jar. And so all I got to do is add ice if you like it over the rocks like me. And if you have it in the house, add some uh, maraschino cherries to it, and you got yourself a Manhattan. Nice. Well, that sounds good. Yeah. It is pretty good, and it's surprising because you know pre mixed thing like that, you you know it can go it can, one of two be ways. Hit or miss. Yeah, and, that's true. Right, and I but I was pleasantly surprised. It's a, it's a good good mix. I do remember the first time I had a Manhattan, and I'll take a quick trip down where where I had this. I was in Louisville, Kentucky. This was a little over five years ago. I was in town for a wedding, and they had a reception in this insanely nice room and i i don't remember if it was a banquet hall or or a hotel i honestly don't remember but i was in a room of full of people all were there for just that event they were pouring just the best top level drinks that could be served and i was with a friend of mine and they 
uh, ordered a Manhattan and so did I. And like that was my introduction to it. I don't know if I've reached for one since because I feel like I would be disappointed because it was one of the most perfect drinks that I've ever been poured. That it, I mean, it really is quite good. And, and and I, of course, learned it from my grandfather and learned it from watching him. <laughs> anyway, and it's <laughs> it, he always had like he had a little shaker thing that you could cap off and keep in the fridge and. He always had that in his fridge and, you know, he would uh, pour himself a nightcap. But he had a rule he'd never go more than two. So that was uh, that was the thing. Uh, what about yourself, okay. sir? Okay, so I have a can in front of me. And it's from a brewery called Oswego Brewing Company out of Oswego, Illinois, of course. The name of the beer uh-huh. is called Arnie's Ale. It is a Scottish style. No. It is a Scotch style ale coming in at 7.8%. And I just bought this beer less than an hour ago, and I just poured my first sampling, and uh, here it goes. I'm coming off a little bit of a disappointment as far as the Scotch Ale that I tried to brew fairly recently. So when I saw the mm. Scotch-style ale, and I, it was in a selection of the store that sold single cans, I was like, yeah, I think that should be the one for tonight. Um, yeah, I give that I'm a, a shot. little, little, um, I'm, I'm, I, I'm watching the ABV on this very carefully because, <laughs> um, I did try a couple samples while I was at the place and I'll get into that more here in a second. But, uh, yeah, if, if I get to the end of this can by the end of this podcast, being at the ABV that it is, I may not be in the best of shape when we finish this up, so so we'll we'll see how we'll see how this goes. So, anyways, on that note, um, I had a I had a cool experience buying this can, and I've got a story that I want to talk about here. So, I bought this can um, from a place called Prestige Wine and Liquors in Westmont, Illinois. There's a free plug for you guys. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> Prestige Wine and Liquors is uh, not here in Darien, a nice place to live, but it's one of our uh, it's one of our neighboring towns, and Prestige gets a very healthy selection of craft beers, um, including but not limited to craft beers from here in the greater Chicagoland area. So it's a great source for that, and it's brought me in several times thanks to that. So it's a good go to place, and I'll and they they certainly get. Um, Get a plug here. But anyways, they also have a very small tap room located right there in their, in their location. And I was offered a sample while I, while I was looking around the racks, and I said, sure. So I had a six ounce of, uh, of hazy IPA while I was uh, looking for a can for tonight. And while talking with the bartender, I learned an interesting fact. So without further ado, I have a question for you, George. Uh-huh. The most widely consumed beer in the world is what? Like, are we talking about like brand or or what? Not overall like brand, a, just a individual style, beer. brand, individual beer. Yeah. In the world. In the world. I'm. You know, I'm tempted to go with something like Heineken. Since that it's... was my f- that was my first guess, also. Okay, all right. 
So obviously I'm wrong. So what do you got? It's it's, it's not. Yeah. So let me narrow this down more. Okay. Um, it's a beer that is almost exclusively available in one country. Almost exclusively available in one country. Now, the way you said that, I'm going to assume that it's not our country. Uh, I mean, I know they say that it's Australian for beer, but I assume it's not Foster's. You know, oh, I, I no. oh, that's. The Aussies are screaming into their into their computers right now. <laughs> yes, to all my spider dodging brethren, I apologize. <laughs> But, all right. So before it I is get not Foster's, causes, before I cause an international incident, why you, <laughs> you tell me what it what it is? Okay. So the most widely consumed beer in the world is called snow beer. Snow beer, yeah, I and never it's a lo- that. and it's a lager beer from Shenyang, China, brewed by C R Snow Brewery. That okay. was a joint venture between SAB Miller and China Resources Enterprises. Okay. So just based on those, with the numbers that uh, that it comes in, in at, it's no surprise that one of the larger international players would want a piece of that. Going back to yeah, our it, previous episode it, forty-two, where we combine, uh, we where we sampled some. Uh, more common beers. It uh, it does bring an interesting thing in my head. Is I never thought of the you know you think of the alcohol culture of of certain places and and certain things come to mind. Like when I think of the alcohol culture of Japan, you know per se, you know sake and uh, a few beer few beer styles come to mind. Obviously, Germany has their you know their their lagers and their their ales and things and you know various places kind of elicit you know certain certain things like France with wine and you know it's it's little stereotypes but it's it's kind of you know that first thing that comes to mind when you mention China you know I got nothing as far as like what what you know is beer their go to thing uh, and 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 if not what would that be. You know, that's what kept me from guessing that a, be- uh, a beer in China would be w- would hold that title as the most widely consumed beer out there. Um, right. I do know that China is home to the most widely consumed liqueur in the world. It's a drink called Firewater, and among very similar lines, I believe it's a drink that's almost exclusive to China, but. You do have to remember just the total population of China being one and a half billion people, which is you oh know, yeah, no, no, no. I, I mean, no the, doubt the lion's share number of of people in the world. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. You're absolutely correct about the you know, but but yeah, like you said though. I mean, when it comes down to per capita, is that just a function of just sheer numbers, or is now if if you ask the average Chinese person? Hey, you feel like getting drunk tonight? What are you going to go to? Is it going to be beer, or is it going <laughs> to be this fire water, which is called Baiju? Did you just is look that still... up? Is, is I, that I what did. it's called, yeah. Baiju? Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, well, I'm probably butchering that, but it's a white or clear liqueur, and it's a distilled beverage. 
So, right. yeah. Yeah, so. Huh. I do believe that the people in China, when you when you mentioned per capita, I don't believe mm-hmm. that they're consuming beer and alcohol at the same rate that European countries or even North American countries are consuming. So that right there is going to drive the number down. So I believe the number one contributor to that is just the sheer number of people. Right. Just based so, on that. Based on, you know, just, just out of pure curiosity, I found something and said the top, the five most popular alcoholic drinks in China. Number four will shock you. No, it doesn't say that. It's not that. Uh, it's not that clickbaity. <laughs> 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 um well well so, played yeah. <laughs> i appreciate that on the list is bijou or baiju or, or whatever it's probably baiju uh yeah and it's it's that white alcohol and then it's hongju i'm guessing the j-i-u suffix is probably denotes some sort of alcoholic nature um, and that is yellow wine. It's made from water, cereal grains such as rice, millet, wheat, sorghum, and something else I can't pronounce. Uh, mm. And, you yeah, know, that's, that's strange. Uh, another distilled liquor. Uh, and, yeah, let's see. Made from, oh, there's, there's one that's kind of a rice wine. And then one called snake wine. Uh, it's... It's alcoholic beverage produced by brewing the whole snake in rice wine or grain alcohol. Oh, and there's pictures. And there's, oh, there's my le- gosh. There's legit really? a snake in the bottle. Yeah. Oh. Because why wouldn't you? <laughs> so, that, so that presents an interesting question. If you're in China and you feel like getting drunk, your choices you are fire water, snake wine, <laughs> or snow beer. depends on how many i've had and how adventurous i'm feeling which may be informed by how many i've had (laughs) yes okay fair enough fair (laughs) so before we close this off let let me mention a couple facts about uh snow beer when snow beer was first released in 1993 it was produced by three breweries as of 2014, CRSB, the brewery that makes this, was the largest brewing company in China with over 90 breweries throughout the country brewing more than one mi- no, I'm sorry, 100 billion hectoliters of snow every year. Don't ask me to do the math on that. <laughs> by, by 2016, SAB Miller owned 49% of snow beer. Before acquiring SAB Miller, Anheuser-Busch had agreed to sell its interest in snow to China Resources Enterprises to satisfy regulators. In 2018, Heineken signed a deal with China Enterprises to purchase a 40% stake into the company. So goodbye, SAB Miller. Hello to Heineken. It makes me and feel a little bit better because we weren't entirely wrong. Heineken has a stake in it. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Snow beer is the best-selling beer brand in the world, despite largely being sold only in China. There you go. Huh. So yeah, and and for those curious, one hectoliter is equivalent to one hundred liters. So when you think of a bomber size, which is seven hundred fifty milliliters, just right. under a liter. So 
just kind of think of that as a comparison. Uh, I don't know why. Wait. No, I think you went the wrong way with that. Said so one hectoliter is equivalent to 100 liters. So no, 100 I get that. liters. But, oh, okay. But if, but if you're buying beer in a store, you're going to either find it in 12 ounce bottles or sometimes bombers, oh, which are right, 750 right, right. milliliters or 22 ounces. So you're trying so, to say it's a shite ton of bottles. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Roughly okay, I'm, I follow. Yeah. 130 bombers, something close to that. Mm-hmm. So just doing some quick yeah, math. Yeah. So that's a lot of beer. Yeah, it is. Okay. And I've, and I've never, I, I don't know if I've ever seen that measurement before. Hectoliters. I haven't either. Yeah. What's wrong with barrels, right? I do feel like so, we're going to get an email from somebody in Europe and just, just really kicking us for, for not recognizing that term more closely. Eh, freedom units. So in <laughs> one hectoliter in U.S. freedom units, in other words, barrels, is 1.17 barrels. One hectoliter? So one hectoliter is 1.17 and change barrels. Got it. Okay. So there you go. All right. So, so our, George, we're not here to talk about Chinese beer, though, are we? We're not talking about Chinese beer. Uh, we're talk to, We're here to talk about grain, but I want to talk about one thing first. Okay. George, your yes. brewing game has changed since the last uh, recording. Yes, it's true. Yes, let's talk. <laughs> okay. So, you know, we kind of, one of our myriad taglines is tips from the semi-pros. Uh, became a little bit more true this weekend as I was uh, able to be a guest brewer on a system in uh, a new brewery that just recently opened up here in uh, Virginia called Unionville Brewing Company. And I assisted with them in the making of their uh, Hefeweizen, which should be coming out soon. And uh, so I stepped up from, you know, making five gallons at a time to making three barrels at a time. And it, it was, it was a process and, and a couple things about it, you know, kind of struck me. And I think, you know, you and I talked about it a little bit and it is uh, something that I kind of think struck you a little bit too, just how similar it is, you know, to what we do. Like, obviously we're both making beer and obviously there's going to be similarities, but what struck me is exactly how similar it is. You would expect with a bigger system, there's going to be different equipment and different processes that we just don't have access to on the homebrew level. But apparently that's all bunk because, you know, it was the, it was the same kind of situation we had, you know, we, we got water up to a certain temperature in their hot liquor tank. We threw some salts in, we, we sent it over to their mash ton. Uh, we did a single infusion mash because we were working with some extremely well-modified grains um, that were milled down with a generous amount of uh, rice hulls, uh, the most rice hulls I've ever seen in one place. And, uh, and it was, you know, um, but it, I mean, it was, it was a hundred and some pound, you know, 160, I think, pound, grain bill but at the end of the day you know we did the mash we did the sparge we did the fly sparge uh we did the vorloff prior to the sparge and 
and it was you know the same standard process that we use just much bigger and and that was honestly a little bit surprising to me i guess it goes to the point that beer making doesn't change from the overall steps of home brewing when you scale up on a commercial level right i mean it's it's all the same stuff that we've been doing since day 1 heating water soaking grains draining off of that grain bed sparging boiling boiling doing yeah. hop adi- doing hop additions cooling and moving to fermenters yeah. you did all that on your commercial brewing day just in a different light i guess yeah and you know we even uh set up in uh, one of their fermenters that's an ipa and so we dry hopped with uh, just like what was it 30 ounces of hops um, but it was, you know, the same pellets we use in a muslin bag and connect and dropped into the pot. And yeah, same, same procedure. So I know it kind of sounds ridiculous. Like, what did I expect? But, you know, it's one of those things that no, no, no. when you I get had, up to I that the scale. Same, no, yeah. I, I had the same thought going in. I, I thought I was going to be seeing a whole bunch of new stuff. And what I saw was just a larger version of what we've been doing since the beginning. Yeah. No, I totally relate to what you're saying. The one learning curve that I did have, and we talked about this outside the show, was the was the transferring because I've never worked with a homebrew setup that had pump systems built into it. Ah. That part that part for me was way different, and the dots didn't fully connect at least initially for me. It took it took several rounds for me to kind of build a comfort level for that. Yeah, yeah. Now I. Um... Yeah, I, I, yeah, and and so I, I have worked with pumps because uh, I got a chugger like last year, and that's right. So yeah, I've been do. working with that on transfer. So that was a little bit the the same. But the other, the only, the other thing that was different that I had not, you know, I have the ball lock quick disconnect uh, clamps for mine, uh, which I really, really like. Um, but at their scale, those don't work. I mean, those would get overpressurized and pop off real quick. So they have what they call a tri-clamp or a tri-clover clamp that um, is, you know, frankly, a little bit of a pain in the ass, but I understand why it's used and it, you know, it works really well, but you have to like line up two pieces that butt together with a silicon um, gasket and then this clamp goes over and you tighten tighten this nut down and that's what holds everything together both you know in place and vertically and it, it I mean, like I said it works really well but when you're trying to do it by yourself especially when you're holding like this what feels like a friggin fire hose up to it with this you know um, th- this end on the end it's it's a little unwieldy so it was definitely a little bit better with two people. So your next graduation will be putting one of your recipes into the yes. brewery. So the plan currently is to take my deck building shandy, uh, which was a lemon lime wheat shandy, and scale it up to their system and put it on their system and, and have it be available for for purchase in their in their tap room. So I'm going to work with them on scaling that up. They they also use Beersmith, which apparently they use a commercial version, which gives them access to a few extra things. Oh, that's and interesting. I didn't even know about I, that. 
I know I need to look into that myself. And uh, but you know he's gonna scale it up, and then we're gonna we're gonna give it a, give it a go. I told George already that when he has his tapping, that I will be there on site for it. <laughs> so honestly, okay. I'm thrilled for you, man. I, I'm so glad that that came together. I, I'm not. I, I'm really not surprised, being that you know it, that Unionville opened a brewery right where you're at. Um, I certainly knew you would have a. You know, you would be there and have some kind of presence there. It's it's awesome that you've uh, met the people and they and you've been able to share knowledge with them and to the point that you're now helping them on batches. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So you know, they've got they they've got a three barrel system with five fermenters, and so uh, you know they've just got the tap room right now. But even with that, they're brewing you know pretty much every weekend. And so as, you know, as I'm able to get down there and help them out, that's what I'm going to do and gain some experience myself, help, help them out as best I can and, you know, see where it goes from there. That's awesome, man. Congrats. Yeah. Thank you. All right. We're going to get into grain. We're going to take a quick break first. So sure. We will be right back and we will talk all about grain. So today we're going to talk about grains, and we're going to put this in a couple of different contexts. So we're going to start off and talk just a little bit on a basic level about what grains are. Um, we're going to have we're going to give some advice as to building a grain profile into your homebrew recipe, and we're going to end by talking about some more technical aspects of grain profiles and grain characteristics that we'll go into in more detail. All right. So what is mm-hmm. what is grain? <laughs> or what is malts? I guess we can present those separately. Sure. George, you want to add uh, add a note to get started? I I mean, we all know, I mean, when we ask the question what is grain, we all know. Well, you know, if you if you've been working with it and you, you see it and it's you know it's that wonderful little thing that you, you either if you're you're newer to it you get it milled from the store or you mill it at the store or if you if you know you either have that or you have shelves of it at your house that you mill when you need it. Um, but the question that we're asking is a little bit deeper than that. It's what is it? How does it gain the characteristics that it has? And 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 you know how, what do you need to know about it in order to really understand what you're working with, and 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 what it will mean for your beer. So to go further into that, grains are the products that you're going to use to basically create your sugar-filled liquid that's going to later become your beer. Water, malt, hops, and yeast, and we're just talking about one of those aspects. Um, there's a correlation, of course, between malts and and grain uh and grain what are malts malts are simply malted grain the malting process involves taking grains from a farm field and letting those grains partially sp- sprout and then bringing those uh sprouted grains into a kiln where it gets heated and basically solidified this is the state where you're going to buy grains from an ingredients supplier 
regardless of where, of where you buy those. The the grains that you buy that's within its own uh, with within within its own husk is pulled from a field and heated in a kiln and brought brought into its state where you're where you're purchasing. From that point after you purchase, of course, to George's earlier point, you're crushing it down um, and eventually going to soak grains over it to extract as much, if not all, of the sugar that's that's contained in that. Barley is the most common form of malted grain that is used in beer making, but it's not limited to barley. Um, beer making also involves grains such as wheat, rye, oats, corn, and rice. One other point about uh, uh, the, the kiln heating. So if you're asking the question, why is the grain heated in the kiln before it's uh, brought to a retail environment? The heating uh, frees up the starches within the grain. And then after that grain is put through a mill and crushed and soaked in hot water, those starches convert into sugar and then once drained becomes your wort. Yeah, and that process basically on a super, super, super high level and, and pedantic beer geeks don't I, don't don't crucify me on this, but at a super, super high level, that is basically modifying the malts is, you know, is how it, it is freeing up those starches and making sure that you're you have your you know soluble um, proteins and nitrogen nitrates in there and and everything is ready for for use by the by the brewer by their you know home brewer commercial. I do think we should get into that concept of modified grains a little bit further in the episode, but before we, we get there, yes, <laughs> yes, there we go. Okay. So what does that mean for for a, uh, for you, the home brewer? So let's let's build from that and go into what makes up a grain profile in a beer recipe. Well, you're going to have at least two of the of the three things that I'll talk about in categories: base malts, specialty malts, and adjunct uh, grains. Starting with base malts. Um, Base malts are your sugar-rich, not very flavorful, but the foundation of a beer recipe. These are malts that are going to be highly fermentable and is going to contribute the vast majority of the fermentable sugars that will make up your grain profile. Common base malts, these should be familiar to every one of you. Two-row, Maris Otter, Pilsen malts, and more recently, I've, I've learned about Golden Promise. George, I think you made a beer recently with Golden Promise. Am I wrong? I think I did. Uh, it was it was before my Wee Heavy, uh, but yeah, I believe I used Golden Promise as as a base. Okay. There's a few others that are common, but somewhat less common. Um, go yeah, go for it. The the six row is one that's used, um, you know, occasionally. Uh, takes a little bit more work on the on the part of the the brewer um and uh in recently jason actually brewed with one that is technically a base malt um it was that red x one as well right which is kind of like a if i remember correctly it's kind of a pilsen malt but it has different characteristics that kind of set itself apart a little bit I do want to talk about Red X in more detail. That beer is currently cold crashing. I want to get my first sampling of that, and then I'd like to talk about that in more detail. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm still I'm, I'm still gaining a full understanding, and I'm using it for the first time, so I look forward to talking about it, but I want to have a first taste first. 
Fair enough. <laughs> to close off base malts, it's important to aim for base malts making up between 80 and 90% of your total grain bill. This will ensure that you're making a beer that's not under attenuated and you won't be left with a lot of leftover sugar that your yeast can't consume. So 80 to 90% should be the number that you should shoot for. I think where you're going with that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, is that that the, the these malts are where you're going to get your most most of your fermentable sugars from. That's exactly and, right. Yeah, so that is, you know, that you, it, if you aim for the majority of your your recipe being these malts, um, you're going to be able to drive that final gravity down and, and, uh, and, and, and you're right. You'll be able to get more alcohol out of it. It'll be drier, but it won't have as much character. And that's where the other ones come in. Exactly. And that segues very nicely to specialty malts. <laughs> so you, t- you take the difference of that. So aim for 80 to 90% of your grain bill being base malts, so when you're building your specialty malt profile, aim to not exceed 20% of your total grain bill with this. Uh, to George's point, if you don't use specialty malts, you're left with kind of a dull basic beer. And specialty malts are included in the profile to build off of that, to make something that has more character based on what you're trying to, to build. The purpose, of course, just being that, uh, being being to add those characters that you so desire with your given beer. Building color, building unique flavors is kind of what you aim for. We'll go through a couple examples of specialty malts, but one caveat I'll say before we go into those, every specialty malt has a specific purpose, and any malt that you choose uh, should be chosen accordingly to what you're trying to create. Oftentimes, home brewers will try to get overly creative with their grain profile and end up adding a bunch of specialty malts that become unnecessary. So our advice, choose your specialty malts when there's a specific reason that you're adding those. Yeah, have a purpose to everything you're doing. You know, more, and and Jason and I have learned this lesson, you know, we've kind of both taken it to heart recently, is sometimes less is more. You know, and have and this is this is a great example of that with the specialty malts. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, because that I mean, the specialty malts is where less is more comes in. So I mean, if you throw in Munich Carapils and and honey malt into a beer, you're gonna have you're gonna have something, but it, you know, it's not gonna be it's it's gonna be a little bit of a confused mess on the palate. So you want to make sure that you can you know, tune things and, and make sure that you're not overpowering the effect the hops will have and the effect the, the yeast will have with trying to get too creative with the, with the, with the specialty malts. You mentioned beer Smith earlier in the, in the episode. And mm-hmm. I think that that has its place here. When you're adding these uh, specialty grains within something like beer Smith, you're going to see the effect. How much color is it adding to how much uh-huh. is it going to add to your final final gravity, depending on what yeast you're you're using? Pay close attention because when you're adding these specialty malts, you're going to see the overall profile of your beer change in those areas. The other thing that's sometimes overlooked in Beersmith and um, and other beer brewing programs is um, the when you click on a a 
um, a specialty grain or even a base grain. And if you were to double click on that and, and open up the details, uh, you know, if it's imported or it's part of the stock program or, you know, a, uh, a, a grain company released a, a profile for their grains, it'll have details about when and how and what what it will add and, yeah, and usually recommendations point. on how much to add, you know, don't exceed this much and things like that. And it, it can give you a lot of really good information. That's true. So that's true. I would recommend and, and looking into that. And it's presented in really small snippets. It's only like two or three sentences for each grain. Typically, yeah. So you're getting right to the important details that you need to account for when you're building one of these. Yeah. So let's talk about a couple of uh, common specialty grains. Caramel crystal is a specialty grain that's going to add some sweetness and a little bit of char- uh, character and flavor to your beer. Um. George and I have used uh, Caramel Crystal to make all kinds of different beers, scotch ales, I believe stouts, one or two maybe, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. IPAs. Um, and there's a lot of variants of Caramel Crystal, and they're uh, measured by the different Lova Bond in each one. The bottom of the scale, I believe, is 10 Lova Bond. I think the top of the scale is 120. If, there, if it goes beyond 120, I'm not familiar with it. But re- regardless, you get the point. You have you have some judgment to be able to make as far as to how much Lova Bond and how much color you're trying to add into your beer, and you mm-hmm. can choose accordingly. And Beersmith will help you measure just what that's going to contribute depending on what number you're going for. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Another thing I'll mention is Munich. Munich's a bit of a different conversation because it doubles as a base grain also. To, to go off of what you said, like I, I just happened to be looking at Munich and Beersmith, you know, just to get, I was trying to figure out a good example and this is a good one for it. So the notes for Brees Munich 10 Lovabon are flavor, robust, malty, color, golden to orange hues in other words that's the color it's going to add to the beer and the the note on that says adds pronounced malty flavors without adding non-fermentable or affecting foam small amounts added to the grist will improve malty flavor and give a richer color to low gravity beers so in other words a lot go, a little goes a long way, and if you want to add a little bit of color and a little bit of malty flavor to an to a say a ale like an like an amber ale or something like that, Munich is a great uh, go to in, in again in small amounts to uh, kind of increase that that color as well as give more character and more body to your beer. So I mean you're you're absolutely right on the mark there. Munich is highly fermentable and it does stand mm-hmm. out from other specialty grains in line with that. Does that article say what Lovaban Munich comes in at? I, I believe it's pretty low. It's not a, it, this isn't a uh, article it's a it's the notes in Beersmith but um this this one in particular is only 10 Lovaban. So yeah, it is that's about it what is I thought. The, but Munich does come in higher, uh, higher love of bonds, kind of like caramel does. But I don't think it goes as high as caramel does. Okay. Yeah. 
right. So no, you're right on. You're right on the money. Um, okay. In beer right. smith, in the stock beer smith, it comes in as ten level bond and twenty level bond. So okay. You're not gonna. You're not gonna be looking to Munich to be adding a ton of color. Like you're not gonna get a stout right. out of Munich malt. Right. But you know, if you want a little bit more multi character, if you want to add a little bit of body to your beer, it's a good one. It's one nice. to keep in mind. Yeah. All right. I feel better now. Thank you for that. <laughs> not a problem. Right. Let's move on to roasted barley. Okay. So the Scotch ale in front of me, I think, is an appropriate base to be talking about this. Um, if you're making a Scotch ale or stout or porter or a darker English beer like a ESB or something similar, roasted barley is a specialty grain which can add some character as well as color to it. Roasted barley can vary between, I believe, about 300 and 500 Lovabon. Mm-hmm. Um, 500 Lovabon being like you're in the black barley category at that point. Um, right. But if that's the beer you're trying to make, that's a type of specialty grain that's going to get you there. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and and you know, think about it that way too. Three hundred SRM, three hundred Lovabon, and it's not quite the same, but um, that you're going to be. This is another one, and, and and this is just like quintessential specialty malts. Oh yeah. Oh no, it's important we talk way. about this. Oh, one hundred percent. That's some. That's yeah. important to remember. So let's say if you have like a let's say a fifteen pound grain bill um, for a five gallon batch that. Most profiles will probably get you six to seven percent, something like that. Um, your recipe probably will top out at eight ounces of that real dark malt, and maybe not even that high. Well, so uh, you, again, you're right on the money. So looking at, at Beersmith, here's the here's the notes: roasted at high temperatures to create a burnt, grainy, coffee-like flavor. Imparts a and, deep and at those uh, lova bonds, yeah, that's that's all it needs. Yeah. Yeah, imparts a, a red to deep brown color to the beer and offers strong roasted flavors. So, and and this this is where you're right on the money. Use two to four percent in brown ales to add a nutty <laughs> yeah. flavor, or three to ten percent in porters and stouts to add a coffee like flavor to it. So, that's right. I mean, less is more on that. Yeah, exactly. I, I think even. Honestly, those notes I think are a little aggressive in ten percent in stouts. That's oh, a lot I, of roasted barley. I would not make a stout or porter at ten percent black malt. Yeah, no way. Well, not a chance. Not black. This this is the three hundred Lovabon version. I definitely wouldn't use the even. You know, even so, e- even so, yeah. I would I would probably stop at probably five. You'd need a lot to to counteract that. That would exactly. Have to be, yeah, for sure. Like George said, less is more, and this this is a perfect example of that. Here's a memory that just came back. When uh-huh. you're using a grain that dark, you can see right away the effect that it has right after your mash is, <laughs> mash is done and you and you're draining out. How often oh. have you? How often did you and I <laughs> brew and we were just shocked at how dark this liquid that uh, was that was coming out of our mash tun. Uh, so that's not the memory that came back to me, but you're absolutely right. It's like, you know, we added, you know, it was maybe like 2% of the grain bill and the liquid that came out was so dark. And we're right. like, how does this just, this little amount add that much to it? Yeah. So the memory now, that came now, back to me. 
No, no. And I'm going to tell you. Memory yeah. that came back to me was when we made, I think it was a stout, and it came out, and it wasn't as dark as you wanted it to be. Oh, God. So we ended up steeping <laughs> some roasted barley, I believe it was, in the pot for a little bit before we boiled it. We brought it up to like 150-some degrees. Yeah. and steeped some roasted barley for like 10 minutes just to add more color to it. And the note I put in the beer was <laughs> that we steeped it because it wasn't dark enough for Jason. <laughs> so to follow that up, I modified that recipe for a later beer that I made after that. And of uh-huh. course, in that built-in recipe was that note that you left. So I had to be reminded <laughs> that my dumb ass on one brew date has said, oh my God. We're entering a big and dark competition. If it's, it's not, not... it's black, <laughs> I'm going to lose. <laughs> Which, in retrospect, was ridiculous. It was no, ridiculous. It was completely unnecessary. Don't feel bad. That competition so, was no, I mean... to start. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. And it lends to the point that we're talking about here is you don't need a lot to accomplish this. Yeah. Simple as that. Yeah, for sure. Honey malt. Can you read the uh, Beersmith description on honey malt? So, uh, pulling up Beersmith here, um, honey malt. So, this one, the flavor profile is intensely sweet, hence the name. And it adds a sweet, malty flavor, sometimes associated with honey, also called brew malt. So, that one's a little bit more uh, open-ended as far as how much you can use. Um they do say when converting to extract, replace this with caramel 20. And that tracks with the Love Bond on this one, which is 25 SRM. And so, I mean, it's, it's going to add a little bit of color. It's actually a little bit darker than Munich. Um, but what it's going to add is a whole lot of sweetness and a whole lot of malty flavor because it does create, it tends to create a bunch of non fermentable sugars that um you know uh and looking at this a little bit more uh it does say in the in the information that the max in the batch should be 10 percent. so you don't want to exceed 10 percent of the total grist so the important point there is about the final gravity because when you're using honey malt that's not going to ferment so the entire character of this specialty malt is going to show up in your finished product right yeah I'm reading an article right now. Uh, it says more typical suggested styles, which include honey malt, are brown ales, summer style pale ales, and Belgians. I've also seen it work well in like a cream ale too. Oh, that that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to round out this topic of specialty malts with carapils. Okay. Carapils is a specialty malt which normally requires between two and five percent is a fairly flavor-neutral specialty malt, and the, uh, and the benefit of using it is added head retention. Mm-hmm. I put this out there because I'm a big advocate of carapils. I put four ounces of carapils into every grain profile that I, that I make, strictly for that fact about the head retention, and it's had a great overall effect on my beers ever since I've made it a regular thing. Yeah, and the interesting thing about that, I learned recently because I was talking to somebody about adding carapils, and then I told them I was doing a protein rest at you know 125, 
before I jumped up to my sacrification rest. And he looked at me a little funny and I asked him afterwards, I was like, why, why, why did you look at me funny when I was talking about my recipe? And he's like, well, you're adding carapils for the head retention and the body of the beer, which makes sense. But then you're doing a protein rest, which is going to break down those dextrins and those proteins that are in there into more fermentable sugars. And so you're breaking down the purpose of the carapils that you're putting in your beer. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. And so I thought about that and it really kind of hit me. And so Honestly, it's been one of the reasons why I've actually just been doing a single infusion on my um, uh, on my beers lately is, you know, and, and I have some exceptions, um, but for the most part, if I'm using well modified, well, uh, you know, night, uh, uh, ones that can break down easily enough and don't you know really need a protein rest. I uh, I've been just going straight to a sacrification rest and and skipping that and honestly I've seen a little bit better results and things like carapils mm-hmm. and what's the other one that uh, works really well is a melanoidin for that um, Poss- possibly yeah I, I might be mixing up. that up with another one but uh, I've been seeing better head retention I've been seeing fuller body and I think it's because I'm not breaking down those proteins in there that I've been, that I'm trying to add in the first place. Did you do a two-step infusion when you made the Hepaweizen at the brewery? Nope. Single. Straight to the sacrification. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. The reason I ask is because I've, I've heard that Hepaweizen is a style that can be done well with a two-step mash. Yeah. But it's one of the the few. I mean, the common ales that you you and I are, are often making more suitable to the single infusion than the double infusion like you're describing right here. Right. And, you know, the two exceptions that I have for when I would, you know, kind of go more towards a protein rest than a sacrification rest. One is uh, wheat and rye. Uh, If they are present in the beer in higher quantities, I tend to to lean more towards a two stage because that will help to break that down a little bit. And the other one is um, some lager uh, recipes. That's true. Like a a classic Pilsner. Like a cot. Yeah. Like a classic Pilsner kind of thing that those will tend to um, benefit from a, a two stage protein rest, sacrification rest. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think we got specialty molds. I, just one to add um it whether you are doing it yourself or whether you are uh buying them as stock grains if you get smoked grains use them sparingly you can very easily overwhelm a beer especially a lighter beer um with smoked grains to where you're just you know essentially drinking an ashtray at that point um and so use those sparingly. When I do it, I tend to do either 10% of the base grain uh, as a max or uh, about 6 to 7% of the total grist. Uh, and that's and those are both max figures when I'm working with a, a dark beer, like a porter recipe that I have that I really like. Um, but the lighter the beer, I tend to go lighter on any kind of smoked grains. 
We've had good results with 10% of the grain bill. So I will echo that comment. If you're looking for a measure to go after for making a smoked beer, 10% Mm -hmm. of the grain bill is a a way that will get you there. Well, just to clarify, that's 10% of the base grain. No, I'm sorry. I meant to say that. 10% of the base grain, yes. Right. And the only reason why I measure it that way is because I smoke my own grains. So... I'll take, yeah, I'll take, uh, you know, like I said, that porter, I tend to use Maris Otter. So I'll take 10% of my Maris Otter as my base grain, put it in my smoker, smoke it, and then re-add it to the, uh, to the grain bill and before, you know, and I usually do that like the day beforehand and, uh, and then create the smoked beer from there. I feel like that's going to be an episode in itself, making your own smoked grains. <laughs> it certainly can be. Yeah. There's yeah. a couple different ways of doing it. So. Right. With, yeah. I mean, you've had really good results of that in multiple I, different ways. Yeah, actually, that's true. Yeah. So some are just so anyways, a little bit more topic reliable for a, than others. Talk, topic <laughs> for a later show. Yeah, for sure. Okay, we're going to close out and go to adjunct grains. Um, these are unmalted grains, um, usually producing unfermentable sugars, but adding some specific uh, character to beers or serving a certain function. Uh, flaked oats, if you're making something like an oatmeal stout, something that's going to have added body to it, those flaked oats will do just that. Um, I believe that, um, I may cut this out if I'm wrong. I believe that people use flaked oats to create some of the hazy character of New England IPAs. Uh, You might be right, but it's not something I know. Uh, I'm absolutely going to cut that out if I'm wrong but I I think I'm right adds body, mouthfeel, and head retention used in oatmeal stouts and porters adds substantial protein haze to light beers yeah, you're absolutely correct Ah, see, okay, no, hey see, see, okay protein rest recommended unless flakes are pre-gelatinized so in how what? you would know that I'm for for flaked oats, if you use flaked oats. In a specific style or anything? I seems like anything. Oh. It's it's just the general notes for flaked oats. Oh. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So when using flaked oats? I wonder if there's a now this is a bit this would be a bit of an experiment. So like I said, there's a you know, like carapels you don't really wanna do a protein rest on but flaked oats you do so what do you do if you have both of those in a recipe um there's kind of, and i don't know this would be this would be worth experimenting or researching is is there such a thing as you either do a protein rest separately and then add them to your grain your your mash um as you're bringing it up to a sacrification or do your mash as a sacrification and then add your care i mean as a protein and then add your carapils when you bring it up to sacrification like adding those specific ones at you know at different stages during the mash i don't know you don't even know what benefit that would give you but it's i think it'd be worth experimenting gosh i feel like i should have researched that before the before the show <laughs> how would you possibly know my brain would go there well so- <laughs> Your your points about the two stage mash are legitimate. 
because yeah, I mean, and it, it, was, it, cha- yeah. it changes the whole the whole strategy behind your mash. Gosh, you're right. It probably would be an experiment. I don't know if we're gonna have we're gonna come up with the answer here on the show. Right. Yeah. No. No. So, I know we won't. But it's worth. I think it'd be worth either researching or experimenting. Yeah. Did you read so, off the description in Beersmith for that one? Flaked oats. For yeah, I did. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we got flaked oats. Flaked oats. Next one, flaked corn. I can't say much to this one because I've never brewed with flaked corn or with corn in general. Um, this came up on episode 42 when we uh, compared our, our cheap beers. Um, that many of those beers were rice and or corn based. Yeah. And reading this, it kind of makes sense as to why. And I never thought about corn doing this. But okay, so you know that corn is pretty heavily used as a, an ingredient for uh, like Mexican lagers, right? Oh, yeah. Like your Coronas and things like that. So listen to this and it'll make a little bit of more sense as to maybe why. Generally, a neutral flavor used to reduce maltiness of beer produces a beer with milder, less malty flavor uses primarily for a light bohemian and pilsner lager. So it takes a beer that, you know, might have that kind of sweet malty flavor and thins it out and reduces that maltiness. And for one where your goal is to come up with a, an easy drinking kind of beer, I totally get why that would work. I do too. And I, and I'm in just hearing that I'm, picturing the flavor of some of those beers that we tried and it's connecting a lot of dots i'm like that makes perfect sense uh-huh that's contributing to have... things like watered down flavors right so ice house took it too far is what you're saying <laughs> <laughs> i would argue that all six of them probably did yeah maybe but so, definitely ice house <laughs> yeah so we're going to close this off and talk about rice halls Rice hulls is flavor neutral, but it serves a specific pur- purpose. If you want to smooth out your drainage or, or draining from your mash tun into your boil kettle, rice hulls is something that'll help get you there. Um, it, all it does is it smooths out the grain bed that's, that's left in your mash tun, and it's going to allow for easy, more easy draining. That's it. That's the only mm-hmm. function. It's cheap. It's simple, and you just spread it across your grain bed. It has yeah. zero effect on your original gravity or final gravity. It's just there to smooth it out. And really, it it, it does not absorb water, um, and it, it is just there, like you said, to smooth it out. And uh, primarily, it's used a lot in wheat beers, wits, and other ones that have high protein content to there. Because uh, that's, if you're going to get a stuck mash, I mean, a stuck sparge, that is probably why. Uh, and wheat beers are extremely prone to stuck sparges. So if you do one that's heavy on the wheat, I definitely recommend throwing in a decent amount of rice hulls. The other instance is if you're making a beer that has a really large grain bill like a double IPA or an imperial stout, something like that, Mm -hmm. that's also going to contribute to things like a stuck sparge, like George was saying. Mm -hmm. And rice hulls will help. For sure. Absolutely. Um, A point about uh, grinding grains. 
Um, all grains are grinded or milled prior to mashing. To get the best character from the grain, uh, it's recommended that your milling should be enough to crack the grain, but not enough to pulverize it. So right. find find that best spot, set your mill accordingly, and then just don't touch it. <laughs> Most of the time, that's true, yeah. Back to a point that we were talking about, about choosing accordingly about specialty malts and not getting overly creative and pick your specialty malts based on something you're trying to accomplish. This should directly correlate to something of a sensory profile that you're hoping to make with your beer. George built this before the show, and I think this is a good map of different sensory profiles that you can make from uh, make a beer into. Sweet, malty, bready, graham cracker, honey, biscuit, nutty, toast, grainy. These are just a couple of the grain-like characteristics that you can make a beer into. And your selection of specialty malts will contribute varying levels of these profiles into your beer. And if you are a fan of Brees as a uh, grain manufacturer, which they're one of my go-tos, um, on the on their data sheets for their different grains, they actually have a reticle graph of those different... It's a circular graph with those different things on different points. And it will kind of show you as a, a, a grain what kind of flavors and profiles you should expect from it. So if you're really looking into, I want to create something that is bready and has a nice, uh, you know, sweet consistency to it. You can kind of dial that in a little bit more specifically. Ready to get into, we have a whole section here to talk about, about uh, technical uh, measurements. And George mentioned the key word uh, just a moment ago about data sheets. There are data sheets available for every specific character of grain. And we're going to go through some of the big bullet points here. Yeah. And I admit I mean, that absolutely. I'm not, and I'm, I'm looking at the list here, and I will freely admit from the onset that I'm not smart enough to, to understand maybe half <laughs> well, of these. As, as, as I'm sure most of you know by this point, in my day job, I am a uh, network engineer. And so I am no stranger to white papers and data sheets and things like that and understanding them and in figuring out the, you know, exactly what that means. Um, So, you know, for me, looking at these data sheets and understanding the different terminology, it kind of gives me a little bit of a roadmap into what am I actually working with? And I'll I'll admit, and doing research for this episode, there was some terms that I was just like, I don't know what the hell this is, and and had to look it up. So it's a... you know, it's a little bit of, uh, but, you know, looking into it and understanding that it gives a little bit more background into what are we actually dealing with, with these grains and how will it affect what we're trying to do? So, um, if you're ready, Jason, I can go into some of the more technical measurement side of things. Ready. All right. So the first one that you'll run into sometimes is either how mealy or how glassy a grain is. Um, it is, it's describing the physical characteristics of the grain. So if 
and and it has to do with how fully exposed the endosperm of the grain is. Malt's designed for brewing, uh, you know, in your grain bill and everything should be, uh, you know, close to 90% or more mealy, which means that you will have, um, oh, yeah, more mealy, which means you'll have more of that endosperm exposed, which means that you'll be able to get more yield out of it. So, so if we're buying grain, can you mm-hmm. see that from just a regular eye? What mealy looks like? I think like? it'd be tough to distinguish it. Now, if you got one that's really mealy and one that's really glassy, you'll I think you'll be able to to um, figure it out. But a lot of your base malts tend to be more mealy, and a lot of your specialty tend to be more glassy. Okay, uh, it's you know, and it's those ones that are more. Um, you know, uh, you know, roasted and things like that, that tend to tend to be more glassy and, you know, you're going to get less yield out of those, but those tend to have the more character that we talked about. So they have their place. Um, but you know, you, what you were saying about 80 to 90% should be base malt kind of feeds into what we're talking about here, that you want to have more meal. You want to be able to get the yield out of them that you, uh, wouldn't be able to otherwise. Sorry. Okay. 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 Um, so that's that. And then um, the next two terms kind of work together. One is plump and the other is through. So they are, they express the size of the kernel. So generally a bigger kernel will be able to give you more yield. Um, and so how plump or how much is, how, what, the throughness of a grain is uh, based on how much would fall through a screen after malting. So what they tend to do is take a 100 gram sample of grain and drop it on three different screens. One is 764th inch, the other is uh, 664th inch, and the last one is 554th inch. And they drop it in and they see how much actually falls through the um, through the screens. So if they do their job right, there should be, and, and they're malting it correctly, the majority of them should be plump and should not fall through the first two screens, either the 716ths or the, the 764ths or the 664ths. And it should, uh, you know, stay up there. So... You know, if you find one that's 90 or plus percent on that, you're, you're doing good. And then you, uh, they, you also have the through, which is how many got through that last screen. So this number should be low. Um, on the data sheet that I looked at, it was 2%. So of 100, ker- 100 grams of kernels that were dropped on the screen, two grams made it through and, and all the way through all three screens. And again, that's a little bit of a measurement of how how big the kernels are, how well the malting process was, and how, you know how much it was able to plump up during that process. Uh, basically, a indicator of how much it, you know how well the process went, and how much yield you should expect to get out of it. Um, so, speaking of moisture, you also have moisture content uh, of the grain. So after you Go through the process. You want to make sure you have a low, relatively low moisture content on that. Base malts tend to be higher in their moisture content because they're they're roasted for a less amount of time. 
uh, and they're malted for less, but they you don't want them to exceed 6%. The higher the moisture level in a uh, malt, the more prone you're going to be to one mold and to them um, losing flavor and losing potential over time. So you want to make sure that you get one that has a low moisture content if you can. I would imagine that there's a direct effect that a moisture level will have on a mash. It, it's probably it, something we would have to do some research on, but I yeah, it, it makes sense to me that there would be something there. I would think so too. Uh, like if you're talking about uh, water absorption during the mashing process, sure, it, sure, it's a higher higher moisture content percentage, it would absorb less water. But I think also the biggest thing you're going to see in a mash is the it is a higher moisture content is usually reflective of a poor malting process. So you're going to get less yield out of it. You're going to be able to, you're not going to be able to convert those over. And plus they're going to, their shelf life is going to be extremely short if it's a high uh, moisture content. All right. So then moving on to this, this next couple kind of get into the, the meat of what everybody cares about. How much alcohol, how much yield can I get out of these? Um, the first one is extract potential for the, for the beer. Um, there's two different categories for this, either fine grind or coarse grind. Uh, coarse grind allows easier to use, but lower yield and fine grind is harder to work with, but tends to have a higher yield. So a lot of times on data sheets, you'll either see fine grind, coarse grind, or you'll see fine grind, and then you'll see something called a coarse grind differential. In other words, if the if you get, do a coarse grind on it, you're going to see this much difference between. So that goes back to what Jason was talking about with the uh, grinder and making sure you don't grind too deep or make sure that you get the right grind on your on your grains. You don't want to pulverize them and crush them into nothing. Um, you are going to run into a little bit less yield on that, but also you're going to every single sparge you do is going to stick. At the same time, if you don't really get a good crack on those grains, if you don't really get you know expose that endosperm and really, then you don't get the uh, sugar. Then you don't get the sugar exactly. So there's a happy medium that most. Uh, Home brewers and frankly, most commercial companies tend to hit. Um, there are there there is a, a case to be made that different grains and different like if you're working with six row or two row or roasted or you know you know different different styles that that should be ground at different um, depths and and you know either fine or coarse. Um, but you know more no. often than can, not, can we dig into that? So, sure. I mean, is that as specific as your base grains should be a more coarse grind than your specialty malts, or I does it, it has or does it entirely to, no. depend on which specialty malts you're using? I think it entirely depends on which malt you're using. Like uh, in a six row, I think you should do coarser. Um, but I think that yeah, I'm sure there's some papers on it, but I think that's something that it would uh, probably lend itself to towards more experimentation on our side. For the most part, you're absolutely right. Find the right setting on your grinder, get to it, and stay there, and just and never touch it again. And, and well, and yeah, just never modify it, and just make sure that you're you're still getting the kind of results you want out of it. 
uh, for the most part, especially at our level, that's exactly what you want to do. Um, but I think, I, you know, and I will tell you this too, just like a data sheet for a network engineer, they are ambitious in some of their uh, extract potentials that they put on it. So the recommendations that I have is lab yields tend to be 5 to 15% higher than what you will find in your shop. Um, hmm. So take that into account. And if they say, you know, that you should get, you know, 90% yield out of it, you know, take that with a little bit of a grain of salt. Um, the next one is proteins and how many, in the, how many, how much uh, protein is in it. Uh, higher protein malts do tend to cause haze in the beer. That's where you get like a lot of the New England style ones have a high protein content in the in their beer. That's where you get that hazy kind of um, you know look to the beer. Um, Hence the oats be, that we talked about a moment ago. Absolutely, yeah, can also contribute to head retention, body, and healthy fermentation. Uh, however. Lagers tend to stick to below 10% to increase the clarity of the beer. So it, when you're, when you're talking about protein rests, um, I mean, protein, a high, high levels of protein in there, like we, you, you will find in a wheat or a flaked oat or anything like that. That's where you start wondering. And I, and, uh, as I was talking about earlier, um, do you do a protein rest? Do you take a quick stop at 125 degrees allow some of those proteins to um, get uh, modified in, in the mash before you go up to a sacrification rest. Uh, the more you do that, the more you break those down, the less haze you're going to get. Um, you're never going to eliminate it completely, but you know the less haze you will get. Um, but the more potential you'll get out of it, and you know it, it'll be it, it, you'll, you'll tend to get you know more sugars out of your out of your total mash. I want to make a New England next. So I feel like I can okay. I can experiment a little bit with some of these things we're talking about. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then the last one for that is the soluble uh, nitrogen ratio. You'll so sometimes see this as percent SNR. Um, and it's the ratio of soluble nitro nitrogen or, or sometimes it has an analog for protein to total nitrogen. And the SNR is an indicator of malt mod modification. The higher the number, the more modified the malt. Um, 35 to 45% is considered well modified for basically like a single infusion or double infusion type of, but, you know, both keeping it in sacrification. Um, over 45% tends to thin out the beer. I'm guessing that's what, uh, you know, it's not really applicable to corn, but it would have the effect of like kind of a flaked corn it would thin out the beer on that and under modified malts 30 to 35 percent tend to require a protein rest or decoction mash to really uh, further modify and break down those proteins to uh, mm. allow them for better use so the that you'll find mash. on uh, sorry the old the decoction, old decoction mash. mash yeah i know right so that you will either find on the data sheet as listed as S slash T or as SNR for the wireless networking nerds out there. That is not signal to noise ratio. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know that was my first thought when I saw Signal to noise ratio. Yes. 
Uh, and then, you know, you go to some other things in the in the profiles as well. The alpha amylase ratio in the malt, often um, expressed as uh, dextrinizing units. Uh, it's the amount of alpha or total amylase that's in the beer, uh, in, in, sorry, in the malt. Um, and it can have the effect of either creating more or less fermentable sugars. Uh, if you remember when we were making the, when uh, I think when, when I made the brewed IPA, I don't know if you've made one or not, Jason, but um, I actually put glucoamylase in there to further break that down. It was a kind of a powdered form to further break that down and help dry out and increase the uh, attenuation of my beer. We um, talked about that on this show. And mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, th- the purpose of that glucoamylase was to break down some of those unfermentable sugars into fermentables. Mm-hmm. Correct. Allowing yeah, you to so, drive that final even further down. Right. So it was basically the to break down some more of that alpha amylase that, that is pres- present in the malt and hence sure. present in the, in the total work. Uh, and the last one really for ar- around the, this kind of um, potential area is uh, diastatic power. Diastatic power is the strength of the starch-reducing enzymes. Indicates how well a malt will take to mashing. The higher a diastatic power means an easier conversion in the mash. A general rule of thumb is the lower the diastatic power the longer and more temperamental it will be for sugar conversion. So um, you'll see that listed on there and uh, that the, you know, like things like wheats and rye and uh, what's the other one I'm thinking of? Well, really definitely those two will have a lower diastatic power and you'll need to give them a little bit more time and attention in the mash uh, I have seen ones with low diastatic power that they actually recommend lengthening the mash um, in the even in the sacrification rest area in order to further break that down. Uh, and that's really where if you do an iodine tincture uh, and making sure that y- you know you've kept it at 100 and say 152, that you're really broken down all of those uh, starches and proteins and sugars and and, and and created as much sugar as you can, um, you know, low diastatic uh, power malts will tend to take a little bit longer. Huh. Okay. And then the last one is color. You know, we talked about it. It either comes in SRM or uh, Love Bond and denotes the color of the grain uh, and what it will add to the, to the beer. Um, you know, along those lines, uh, I can't stress enough. And if you're either looking at a data sheet, you're looking in Beersmith, Brewer's Friend, or wherever, pay attention to the notes and the recommendations uh, that you see. Uh, those can tell you a lot that simple numbers can't. And make sure that you understand what you're putting into your beer, and more importantly, why. Why you're putting it in and what effect you, uh, you're looking to get out of that particular malt. Color may be one of the easiest elements to control, just from mm-hmm. what we talked about, just over this section. This is all over Beersmith, and this is going to change very rapidly depending on what kind of specialty malts that you add to your profile. 
So this is right in front of you. It's very easy to manage. Just pay close attention and choose accordingly. Yeah, so absolutely. One, one mm-hmm. thing I didn't mention during our discussion about specialty malts, the number of specialty malts out there, I, you can't even count. It's easily in the hundreds. Just think of all the grains that are built throughout the world that can eventually end up in a kiln and, and dried out. There's no end to those. And each of those is going to do something different potentially to your beer. Yeah, and you know, the other thing I will say is make sure that you're not taken in by good marketing. Um, you know, there's you know, these companies; they do have to compete with each other. They do have to make sure that they are, uh, you know, getting market share and everything. So that's understood. But there's certain ones that I've seen that have been a little bit of a flash in the pan kind of situation where it's like this is some. You know, that it's, it's a Munich that is going to revolutionize the thing. And at the end of the day, it's a Munich, you know, it might have a little bit more diastatic power or it might give a little bit different color or whatnot, but make sure that you're paying attention to the numbers and paying attention to what, um, you know, what other people's experience has been with the Malton and make sure you're, you're getting it for the right reasons. That's that's well said if it sounds too good to be true it probably is yeah sometimes is yeah you know just an old concept but it's worth repeating there yeah well i hope you learned something new about grains there's a lot here in this section i think i think we hit this really well yeah you know and i know that these technical measurements can be a bit dry and um you know but the more you learn about what they will add to the beer and the more more you understand how to read them um the better you're going to be you're able to select the different grains that you want to use um you know sometimes it is as simple as throwing it at a wall and see what sticks um but you know when you're really trying to fine tune it let's say you have that amber ale recipe that you like but something's missing you want that extra flavor that you're just not getting. Sometimes going to these data sheets, the notes, the the information in you know Beersmith and other places can help you f- you know fill that gap and and really understand. Okay, I want to add a little bit of biscuity flavor to this. How can I do that? And, yeah, yeah, that can really help. Well said. All right, there you go. All about grains. Mm-hmm. Oh, before we send this out, uh, I'll send out our social media links. Uh, check us out on Twitter and Instagram at A Nice Place to Brew or Nice Place to Brew. We're on Facebook as well at A Nice Place to Brew. Uh, we have a website as well, www.aniceplacetobrew.com. Hey, and going it, back it, to it, our previous episode, <laughs> is this where you're going? Uh, I, th- I think it is, but go ahead. Okay, going back to our previous episode, um, we put an offering out there to our listeners we have not received the answer to the question that was posed, so we will echo here, uh, echo that same question here on today's show. Um, so if you have not listened to episode 40, uh, 42, um, the question is, when you're decoction mashing, which is a term that we talked about earlier on this show as well, what will dictate the number of decoctions that you do during your brew day. 
You can contact us on any of our social media links. Our uh, email address is on uh, is on our website at www.aniceplacetobrew.com. And the prize is a free copy of The Complete Joy of Homebrewing, second edition. So come to us any and, way that, uh, that you decide. And to, and to be fair, we're not – because I've received some – I've received some responses and some answers to this. But, I mean, come on, guys. We're not looking for the actual technical answer. There's something buried in a nice place to, a nice place to brew lore – in the uh, episode we where we actually talked about decoction mashing, that is the answer to this. So that's right. To everybody that answered the question using the proper answer, you are technically correct, which is the best kind of correct, but you're also wrong, and not the answer <laughs> we're looking for. So, so no, that's actually not where I was going. Where I was going was uh, I appreciate everyone bearing with me. Uh, I am redesigning our site and uh put it in a different place uh, under uh wordpress hosting that i'm i'm figuring out the the ins and outs of unfortunately our last site was hijacked by jerks and i had to abandon that so um it's going to take me a hot minute to rebuild it and i apologize for the delay on that but again thank you everybody for bearing with me on that and we are still absolutely accessible on our social media presence and uh, more especially on Facebook that we both uh, monitor just to make sure that if you guys have anything you need, we're able to provide it for you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait a second. I almost forgot. What's that? Want a trivia question? Oh yeah, go ahead. Okay. All right. This episode's trivia question relates to the four traditional German noble hops. You ready? So I thought there was more than four. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Which of the following is not traditionally considered a noble hop? Is it Cluster, Spalt, Tetnanger, or Saz? Cluster, I believe. You got it. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. I think the uh, other one is Harlatau, isn't it? You got that too. I was going to say, noble hops are classic <laughs> European varieties that are responsible for the signature flavors of Pilsner and other continental lagers. The four noble varieties are Hallertau, Tetnag, Spalt, and Saz. Well done, George. Yes, thank you. All right. Yes. All right. All right. I think we're ready to close out today's episode. George, you mm-hmm. have a trip to uh, to get on to? I do. Good times, good times are ahead. Yeah. All right. It takes a lot of good beer to make great beer. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.